Well, good morning. I hope you're well. Uh, I hope you've been enjoying uh, the Leviticus series, Bloods, Boils and Blessings. Um, It's quite an odd book, isn't it? Let's just be honest. It's a bit strange uh, and obscure in a few ways. But as we've seen over the last several weeks, as I hope you've seen over the last several weeks through a series, it shows us something of the heart of God in wanting to be with us, to be with people And it even describes in great length about how he has done that through the history of the Israelite people. And we can see through this series, if we look at the the slides, uh, we've kind of, there's a shape to Leviticus. And we've, uh, you can see that shape in this kind of pyramid. We started by going up the sides uh, of the pyramid, which focused in on the key question, how can an imperfect people dwell with a perfect God. And, and that led us to the kind of the pinnacle of uh, the uh, kind of this pyramid, which is the Day of Atonement, which is the kind of the climax, if you like, of the book. This moment each year when uh, the people of God would gather around the tent of meeting, the high priest would go in to the very presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. And we know that there are these two goats. One goat was sacrificed on the altar in place of the people of Israel. And then this other goat, which was driven, it was cast out of God's presence in their place. And then from the top of the pyramid, we start going down the other side and we journey down the other side, where it's all about what happens actually when humans and God then do dwell together. We heard uh, last week how God not only wanted to purify the people of God from what they've done wrong, that kind of going up the one side of the pyramid, But then he also wanted uh, them to reflect, live lives which reflected God's nature. He wanted them to live holy lives. And that's what this journey on the way down the pyramid is about. He wants them as a people to live holy lives that are pleasing to him. So there are all these rules about how to keep clean and how to avoid uncleanliness. It's about how to live differently to the other peoples around them. Andrew picked up particularly last week about just sexual immorality, just the different sexual practices of people in that day in different places around them. And God says, no, I don't want you to do any of those things. I want you to be set apart and to look different for me. And then we get to Leviticus 26, uh, which is the chapter we're going to look at today. And we're going to be looking at the blessings And then the curses which will and indeed do come about as a result of God's people keeping or breaking that covenant promise. Now, just to say today might seem a little bit strange when we're looking through the Bible because not least we we like to keep the negative side of life in small print. You know, particularly when we look at advertising, when we're looking at selling, when we're looking at contracts, whether it be your phone contract, TV, anything else, those small print are those negatives that we try to hide away. Whereas actually, God goes very loud on not only the benefits, but he actually gets very clear on the negatives of not coming alongside him and being obedient to his law. And actually, this is not too different to what would have been normal practice in the ancient kind of Near Eastern covenants in the culture of the day. Any kind of agreement, any covenant between two parties of the day, it would have been finished by a list, if you like, of the benefits of being part of this agreement, but also what the consequences would have been for either party if they were going to uh, not continue in that covenant, if they were to break that covenant. And that's what we find here in chapter 26. God doesn't hide the consequences of Israel not fulfilling 
their sides of the covenant. So this passage, chapter 26, is broken up into three clear sections. Uh, the blessings of the covenant, uh, the consequences of breaking it, and then the promise of future restoration when they do break it. It's almost as though God knows in good time what is actually going to happen and he puts in place the process, the means by which he's promised to restore them again when they fail to be obedient to his plan. So remember, as Andrew said last week, uh, this is uh, not a means of the people of Israel gaining a covenant with God. They've already got that. They've already got that relationship with God. They already have uh, this, uh, you know, God has delivered them from uh, Egypt. He has already promised a covenant with himself and them as a people. So this is not about them trying to gain uh, a relationship with God. This is about how that relationship actually plays out. Now, because of time, we're not going to read um, the whole passage. I'm not sure if I'm even brave enough to do that. Uh, but I'm just going to pick out a few verses to give you a flavour of uh, this first section, the blessings of the covenant. It says this from verse 9. It says, I will turn to you. This is God talking to the people of Israel. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the ultimate way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your gods and you shall be my people. So what happens then when you keep God's covenant, when you live by his law? Well, God says it, it brings blessing. You have food, you have peace, you have wealth. And it talks about abundance as well. And if you read the whole thing, you'll notice that the blessings that God promises, they grow in their significance until uh, actually when you get to verse 12, it has the, the kind of the pinnacle of this promise to the people of Israel. He says this, uh, which I think I've, I've kind of put it in bold at the end of that slide. I will walk among you and will be your gods and you shall be my people. It's meant to remind the people of Israel and remind us of that time in Genesis when Adam and Eve are walking in the garden with God in the cool of the day. God's same desire to be with people in the beginning is now being worked out with the people of Israel. He promises to even walk among them. So this is the, the kind of the sales pitch of the covenant, if you like. Come with me and I will do you good. Who, who wouldn't want all of those things. But then, and a slight kind of twist in sales tactic, between verses 13 and 39, which is a much larger portion of this passage, God outlines the consequences, if you like, for breaking that covenant relationship, turning away from God the life giver, and turning to idols and neglecting his laws. And these, are just, these aren't just consequences, these are curses, the active things that God will do to the people of Israel if they are not obedient to his laws. He says this in verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And then just like the blessings, God outlines in ever-increasing significance what he will do to the people of Israel if they break covenant promises with him. 
And it's not pretty. I mean, just to pick out a few, verse 17, uh, this is what God says, says, I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. So no longer living in peace like we saw a few verses earlier, but now actually you're going to be at war. Verse 19, I will break the pride of your power and I'll make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength even shall be spent in vain. Why? Because your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. And then there's this final blow. After these ever-increasing significant consequences, these curses of rejecting God and going their own way, comes verse 33 where God says, and I will scatter you among the nations and I'll unsheathe the sword after you and your lands shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. In, in other words, you'll be exiled and cast out of my presence. No longer there, uh, kind of in uh, the abundance of my promised land, you're going to be scattered, the people of God dispersed and brought to ruin. Now, if you know anything about your biblical history, uh, you know that all of these things do end up happening because the people of Israel do turn away from God and end up serving uh, foreign idols. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read things like this, it presents a few problems to me. I can sometimes struggle to reconcile maybe the God that we kind of worshipped even a few moments ago and the God I'm reading about here. Those then 25 verses of ever-increasing uh, um, curses seem what uh, somewhat even vindictive, and it could even be easy to just not read it at all, which is what sometimes people do, or at least conclude that maybe God wasn't directly involved. Maybe these are just merely consequences of not loving and serving the life giver, just the inevitable consequences. You know, they just brought these things on themselves, maybe, didn't they? But God really doesn't leave that as an option for us. Repeatedly says, I will do these things. So I think the reason we can struggle is because we read this passages like this through our own lens of understanding and not through God's perspective. So in a book, this is the last of a series where we've been looking that God's heart is to be with people, that he loves people. His, his heart is that he wants to be with us and for us to live life to the full. So what's going on here with these curses? How can we reconcile these two things? And I I think the answer can actually be found in the passage in several places. If you were to look in verse 14, uh, God says, he says, if you will not listen to me, and then he goes on to list ever more increasing um, severity in terms of the consequences of not being obedient to him. Verse 18, and if in spite of those things, you will not listen to me. And then later on, verse 21, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me. Again, verse 27, but if in spite of this, you will not listen to me. We see every single time that the consequences of walking away from God get more and more severe, God is calling the people of God to repent and come back to him every single time. God doesn't delight in discipline. He says in the word of God that he delights in those he loves. 
But he's willing to discipline those he loves in order that they may find life and blessing. I I don't think the question is, why does God punish Israel? I, I think the question is, how can the people of God persistently refuse to hear God's voice despite him calling for them, whispering and loving them again and again and again, calling them to repent time and time again? But then when I look at my own life and when I look at my own failings, I can see myself in the people of God time and time again. And I I realise that this is not actually about a kind of a vindictive God who desires to punish, but actually about a wonderful, patient, loving Father who is bringing discipline for the benefit of the people who would otherwise come to much, much greater harm. I'm a parent of three wonderful kids. I love my kids. And um, the way that my love is outworked with my kids, well, it's outworked in in various ways. Physical affection. I love to hug them, kiss them. Um, I love to listen to them. I love to uh, try and give them the attention that they need, which is sometimes difficult. But I also love to try and provide for what they Need. And it's no different, actually. There's lots of um, correlation between our relationship and God because the Bible tells us that God is like a father. It says in Psalm 16:3, this is what he feels about us as his children. It says, And for the saints who are on the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. <laughs> it's just such a, a lovely thought to think that actually all of God's delight is in us as his children. Romans 8 says that nothing can separate him from his love. 1 Peter 3 talks about him being able to see us. He says his ears are attentive to our prayers. Again in Romans 8, he will, will he not graciously give us all things because he gave us his son? And actually the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. But another way that my love is played out with my kids at home quite regularly is in teaching them what is right and what is wrong maybe preventing them from getting in harm's way, helping them to make choices that lead to blessing and not to pain and to harm. And it's no different to God when he loves us as a father. I, I don't take any pleasure in saying no to my kids um, or disciplining my children, nor do I have any pleasure, I take any pleasure in being disciplined myself. I don't think any of us do. But when the motive of discipline is love, And when the goal of discipline is life, we can start to see how these verses look very, very different. Notice the heart of God here. He wants people to experience blessing rather than curses. And he always leaves that as an option for us. Always leaves it as an option for us. But there is a really big problem. There's a massive problem. Because trying to live by the law, by this standard that God set, it inevitably results in curses. It inevitably happens. Why? Because sinful humans are just unable to keep God's law. The Israelites were unable to do it. And we are unable to fulfill God's law. In essence, the heart of the issue is the issue of the human heart. There is nothing wrong with the law. 
but by receiving it, it highlights to the Israelites and to us the potential for sin in our lives. I just want you to imagine, uh, I say I've got three children, they're playing in the garden. Caleb's got a garden fork and he's digging and he's looking for worms. They're playing really nicely, they're fine. And I come out and I just say to Caleb, Caleb, just don't hit your sister in the head with a fork. Now, inevitably what happens is Caleb thinks, that's a great idea. What would happen if I just duff her on the head with a fork? There's nothing wrong with the rule of, of the law. Actually, it's a good principle to say we just don't hit people on the head with a fork. But the fact that it's been highlighted actually highlights something of a sin in our hearts and our lives, which actually leads us to doing the things which are the seeds of sin in our hearts. And it's no different with the law that God gives us. It serves as a reminder, as a constant reminder that we on our own are are unable to meet the standard of God's law. We may even consider ourselves to be pretty good to be able to, to kind of avoid some of those really big sins, but this law actually is, is so detailed and, it, and the bar is so high that inevitably they need to continuously sacrifice and they need to continue bring offerings to God to appease the wrath of God. Why? So that they might receive his blessing and keep in this covenant the fact that they had to continuously make these service, serve, uh, sacrifices led to further highlight the fact that they were unable to break the curse of sin completely without God. And that's when we arrive at verse 40 and this promise of uh, restoration. God knew that being slaves to sin meant we were unable to free ourselves from the curse of God and live free lives. So we've looked at the blessings of God and what he promises, but we've looked at the curses of what happens when we don't. And we've learned through time, through history, that actually inevitably we receive the curse of God, the judgment of God, because we are unable of ourselves. And then God promises redemption through Jesus. This is where Jesus fulfills God's promise for restoration. <laughs> And, and it's not through the sacrifices of a goat once a year. It's, it's, it's through the shedding of his own blood on the cross for us. This once and for all sacrifice for all mankind, that all who would put their faith in him, their sins can be atoned for. It's, it's not through our own efforts that we may try and fulfill the law. It's not through us trying to meet any standard that we set or even God sets. It's not about us fulfilling those things. It's about Jesus, the one who lived a sinless life and was able to fulfill every single part of the law. It's not through a scapegoat on a day of atonement, just taken out of the village, taken away from God's presence. No, Jesus was the scapegoat. <laughs> He was the scapegoat. He was the one who took all of the curse of Jesus, uh, curse of God on himself so that we may come into the very presence of God. Not through us receiving the curse of God, the curse of punishment and the wrath of God, but that wrath of God was placed on Jesus on a cross so that we may receive freedom from the slavery of sin. That we may receive a heart of 
flesh, not one of stone, not one that tries to appease God by following rules, but one where actually the rule of God is written on our hearts. That He enables us to have a love for God and an ability to please him in what we do, to not be under the curse of God, but to receive his blessings. Our identity, if you're a Christian, is completely turned around, not because you're an Israelite, but because you are someone who has been ransomed, healed, forgiven by Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross. In a sense, all of this story of Leviticus, this pyramid of what we need to try and do in order to atone for our sins, is all a picture of what will happen when Jesus comes again. Jesus will be the lamb that was slain. He will be the one that will take the punishment and the curse of God's for us. It says this in Galatians 3. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's you and me, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I do hope you've enjoyed this series but I hope also that you have learned something that God wants you. God loves you. And, and this whole message of this book, this whole the law, the whole cleanliness, the whole idea is to make you recognize that you are so incapable of meeting God's standards. And it, it points all of the Israelite people, points all of us, every person through history to just say, we cannot do it on our own. But praise God that in his mercy and in his grace, Jesus came as a willing sacrifice so that we may not receive the curse of God, but receive his blessings upon blessings in Christ Jesus. If Leviticus teaches us anything, it's that God really wants you. God, I just want to thank you so much for uh, this book of Leviticus. And although sometimes we can read through passages and they may be tough, Maybe sometimes we don't even fully understand them, but I'm so glad that over this series, what we've learned is that you want us so much that you are willing to teach us through your law that we are uh, failing significantly to meet the standard that you've set. But not only that, but you have given the means through sacrifice, through the whole of the Old Testament, but ultimately in the sacrifice of your son, that we may come right into the presence of God, not under conviction of sin, not condemned. But actually we say there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus because you have paid it all. And so today we just say thank you. Thank you for the message of Leviticus. Thank you for the message of the gospel that grace is available because of you and your sacrifice on the, sun, on the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Uh, we're going to be breaking bread together today. Um, if you're at home, wherever you are, you can maybe do that with someone in your family or even on your own. Just remember what Jesus did for you. Why don't you just think and just say, God, I'm so grateful that you took the curse of God on yourself so that I may receive your blessings. That would be a really good way to respond to this message as you go from here, not trying to do better, but just following closer to him, knowing that he has done it all. We can just rest in his presence and enjoy being with him. Amen. God bless you.